Hi, this is Dr. John Ankerberg. I invite you to dig into God's Word today with my dear friend, the late Dr. Wayne Barber, as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible. Joshua chapter 22. Maybe next year, some of you like to go to the Cove with us. We're going to do it that again in August of next year. So be praying about that. We'd love to have you join us over there. Well, good to be back home. We're talking about the incredible journey, and this is part 13. Some of you felt like we were going to finish way back in August. No, 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 no. We have a lot more to go. My title today is Learning to Dwell in Peace with the Odd Brother. Learning to Dwell in Peace with the odd brother. Let me read a couple of passages from the New Testament to kind of warm you to where the new covenant is and what we are supposed to be living, how we're supposed to be living. In Ephesians 4, 1, Therefore, he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, for three chapters, he's told us the riches of God's grace. The word worthy, oxios, means to be balanced. To make sure if you know all of this, then live accordingly. And in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, not produce it, preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then I think the passage that goes so well with that is Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, before I get you into Joshua 22 today, I want to know how many of you remember the old Twilight Zone on TV, the black and white program, The Twilight Zone? Do you remember the episode, and this will tell your age, <laughs> when they were operating on this woman on her face, and they were trying to make her beautiful? And all of them had masks on. They were in surgery, and the nurses, the doctors. And they go through the whole program working on her face to make her beautiful. And when they finish, you look at her face and you think, that is gorgeous. They succeeded. But every one of them says, oh, no, look how ugly she is. We failed. And I'm thinking, what? And then they took their mask off, and they're the ugliest creatures you've ever seen in your life. And then comes a little phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> now, with that in mind, I want you to know there are some odd brothers in the family of God. Now, I don't want you to jump ahead of me and start pointing, okay? Don't do that. <laughs> there are some odd brothers in the family of God. But just as I think somebody else is odd, they're looking right back at me and thinking I'm odd because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Normally, it's all in the eye of the beholder except for our message today. I'm going to have to define for you what I mean by odd so that we can get understand the text that we're going to be looking at. Odd is not when a believer chooses to radically live surrendered to Christ. That is not odd. That's the normal Christian life. Sadly enough, this isn't the case in many places, and they see fully surrendered believers as, as odd. Oh, no, that's normal. No, the odd brother in our message today is the one who is eager to serve but not willing to surrender fully to Christ. 
It's the one who lives right at the edge of all that he has in Christ. Now be careful. Don't point a finger. because Every one of us have been there at one time or another in our walk with Christ. That's not my point. My point is, how do we, how do we live in peace with those among us who choose to live this way? How do you live in peace? When they choose to live on the edge, but they won't go on over. When they choose to live and serve, but they will not surrender. Well, how do you live in peace with them? And I'll tell you what, it's important because how we treat one another frames the true test of whether or not we are experiencing the life that we have in Christ. People in God's economy, they are our school of brokenness. You say, what's that got to do with Joshua 22? So glad you asked. There were two and a half tribes out of the 12 tribes that I believe, according to my definition, that they fit this description of the odd brothers. These two and a half tribes made a conscious decision to live on the opposite side of the land God had given to Israel. The area they chose to live in was the Transjordan. It's east of the Jordan River. Now, according to Numbers chapter 34, 1 through 12, Ezekiel 47, 13 through 20, the Jordan River is the eastern boundary of the land God promised to Israel. And I think we might have a map if we can get that up there. There you go. See that map? The red line is Numbers 34. The blue line is Ezekiel 47. If you look, it, it tracks right down the Jordan River as the eastern border of what God gave to the people. But now these two and a half tribes chose to live outside of the boundary of the land of God's blessing. They chose to live on the other side. This decision would, would divide the nation and would separate these two and a half tribes from fully enjoying everything that God had promised to all the twelve. In Numbers chapter 32, verses 1 through 5, they give the reason why they chose to live on the other side. Now, those two and a half tribes were the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. And in, in chapter 32, 1 through 5 of Numbers, the reason they gave for, for choosing this land, instead of the land of promise that God had promised, was not a spiritual reason, but was based on material gain because they were cattle raisers. And they looked over here on the other side of the Jordan, not the land that God had given on the eastern side. They looked over there, and they thought that the grazing would be better, <clears throat> and therefore they made a conscious choice for what seemed best to them. It's like the proverbial cow. You ever seen that picture? <clears throat> Excuse me. Isn't that awful? Right in the microphone. <clears throat> here we go. <laughs> There's no, there's no spiritual way to do that. I'm, I'm sorry. Yes, there's no way to do it. But have you ever seen the picture of the cow on the side of the road? And he's got his head stuck through. I, actually, you've seen it. A cow's got his head stuck through the barbed wire fence, eating the dirty grass and weeds amongst the rocks on the side of the road. And behind it, that cow is 40 acres of green grass. Grass is always greener on the other side, isn't it? These two and a half tribes says, we know what's best for us. We know what's best for our cattle. When Moses heard their request that they made in Numbers 32, he was outraged, outraged. First in Numbers 32, 6, he tells them that for their, 
fellow countrymen to go to war in Canaan while they sat idle on the other side of the Transjordan would be unfair. In verse 7, he tells them that to remain on the other side of the River Jordan, they would be discouraging the other tribes from going on over and con conquering the land. In verses 8 through 10, he tells them that their fathers had done the same things when they listened to the ten spies but wouldn't listen to Joshua and Caleb and they persuaded the people not to go over. And he also calls them a brood of sinners just like their father. He tells them that their proposal would make God much more angry with Israel. And finally in verses 14 through 16, he told them that they would be at fault if Israel refused to follow God into Canaan and consequently they would meet with devastation and destruction in the wilderness. Whoa! Moses was upset. Well, they came back with a compromise. They promised to leave their wives and children back in fenced-in areas of, of protection on the eastern side, but send their men, 40,000-plus of them, into battle with Israel to help Israel conquer the land that God had given to them. And once that the battle was over, once they had conquered the land, the land was divided, they would go back to the other side of the Jordan. So Moses granted their request. Nowhere do I find, and you may can help me, that Moses conferred with the Lord about it. He didn't consult with God about it. But isn't it interesting as New Covenant believers how we are still tempted, every one of us, to trust our own logic as to what's better for us instead of trusting God to know what's best for us. Aren't we so tempted to live right up next to where God has given all of the, of the promises in our life. We live right up next to it, but we choose to live our way, not His way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Well, hopefully this better helps us understand what's going on in chapter 22 of Joshua. Back in Numbers, they made the request. Moses granted it. They have completed their promise to Help the nine and a half tribes possess the land. Now the two and a half tribes are ready to go back to the other side of the Jordan. Our message, again, is about what can we learn from Israel that helps us in, in the new covenant to live at peace with our odd brother who will serve, now listen carefully, who will serve with the best but will not walk with the surrendered. How do we live at peace with that? It's going to be that way in the church of Jesus Christ till Jesus comes back. So how do we live with a brother who will not choose to walk in what God says is his? How does the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ who lives in us, work in our lives to accomplish his peace in our relationships with the odd brother in the family? Jesus be Jesus in me, no longer me but thee. Resurrection power, fill me this hour. Jesus be Jesus in me. What does that look like? First of all, Christ in us will lead us to appreciate others' eagerness to serve, but will also cause us to encourage their willingness to surrender. And I'm going to try to make this clear to you. Serving and surrendering can have a huge gap between one another. Let me see if I can explain. The two and a half tribes had served Israel very faithfully. In one battle, after another battle, after another battle. What some say, for 14 years, they've served faithfully. They did exactly what they said that they would do. So in verse 1 of Joshua 22, 
Joshua summons them all to Shiloh. The, uh, all the two and a half tribes, he, he summons them to Shiloh. Shiloh is the headquarters of Joshua, and it's also the place where the tabernacle was, as we learn from chapter 18 of Joshua. Joshua thanks them for their service and a willing participation in helping them possess the land. He says in verse 2 of Joshua 22, And said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have listened to my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And he graciously cuts them loose, sends them home with a deep sense of appreciation. Verse 4, And now the Lord God, your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore turn now and go to your tents to the land of your possession which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. But now he's not through yet. Knowing that they'll be separated from the rest of the nation, rest of Israel, they're going to be on the other side of the promised land. He cautions them about their spiritual lives you see while serving they were a band of brothers they were united side by side for a cause but now they were going back to where they had chosen to live outside of that which god had promised verse 5 here's what joshua does only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law moses the servant of the lord commanded you to love the Lord your God and walk in all His ways and keep His commandments and hold fast to Him and serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and then went away to their tents. The attitude of Joshua towards these two and a half tribes was to thank them for their willingness to serve. They were willing to serve. They had been very faithful to do exactly what they said they would do. But in sending them home, he warned them that serving is one thing, but living surrendered to God can be quite another. You see, the odd brother, is, according to our definition in this message, will serve with the best. They will be there. They will serve with the best, but they choose not to live surrendered to God, and they miss out. They miss out on the blessing of the life that he's promised to you and me. In Hebrews it says, in Hebrews 3 verse 13, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Christ in us leads us to appreciate another's eagerness to serve, but to encourage their willingness to surrender. And once again, there's a huge gap between serving and surrendering. You say, show me that in Scripture. Thank you. That's why Paul wrote the book of Galatians. Have you never studied it? Do you not realize that he's writing to the southern churches of Galatia, most likely? And it's not one church. And what has happened to them? Somebody has come along and put them back under the law, the performance mentality, and now they're all about doing instead of about surrendering and becoming and being. And that's the new covenant. And they had shifted gears back to what they could do for God rather than what God wanted to do through them. Now listen, make sure you're hearing me. You can serve without being surrendered. You cannot surrender without serving. There is a service, but that service has got to flow out of a surrendered heart. That service then is enabled by the Spirit of God 
And there are many people in the Christian world today that will serve with the best, but will not walk with the surrendered. And there's a huge difference. So, what does God tell us to do? Well, what would Christ do in our life? He would appreciate their eagerness to serve, but we encourage their willingness to surrender. Well, the second thing that we do to, in order he accomplishes peace amongst one another Christ in us restrains us from jumping to conclusions when it appears our odd brother does something wrong, and they will. <laughs> but it keeps us from drawing quick, too quick of a conclusion. Isn't it interesting how much trouble we get in when we separate from one another? Have you ever been a while in your life that you didn't go to church? A while in your life that it was like a desert and you weren't with God's people? How much trouble we get into? Well, this seems to be the idea of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's when we're together that we can encourage. It's when we're together that we can be bound by the things that, that the Spirit leads us to do. Well, once the two and a half tribes got back into their land, they're on the other side of the Jordan, they did something that caused quite a stir for the nine and a half tribes. Verse 10, when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a large altar in appearance. Now, apparently, this altar was not a small, insignificant altar. It was a large altar in appearance. It says they built it on the side of Canaan. What? They didn't build it on their side. They built it on the Canaan side. Now, the tabernacle was in Shiloh, and it was the sole place of worship. That's where the altar of the Lord was. These folks built an exact copy of the altar of the Lord at Shiloh. How do you know that, Wayne? Down in verse 28. He says, see the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made. And in one Hebrew scholar says, it was the exact copy of the altar there in Shiloh. Now let me ask you a question. How do you think this would have been perceived by the nine and a half tribes when they heard about it? How do you think they would have heard about it? What do you think was the first thing that went through their mind? They're building this altar appeared to be an act of heresy for the nine and a half tribes. Verse, verse 11. And the sons of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the side belonging to the sons of Israel. When the sons of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to do what? To go up against them in war. Man, this is war. This, we're coming after you. Note that in verse 12, by the way, just note this. There's something hit me as I was studying it. It refers to the nine and a half tribes as being the whole of Israel. Isn't that interesting? I thought there were nine and a half tribes. <laughs> there were really 12 altogether, weren't there? It seems apparent to me that not only had the two and a half tribes separated themselves from the others, but the other nine and a half tribes had disenfranchised them. All that's, it's us and them. It's us and them. But thank God that he had given them instructions of what to do if this kind of thing ever happened. We don't jump to conclusions. Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 12 tells us what to do, tells them what to do. They have, they have direction. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, 
anyone saying that some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known, then you shall do three things. You shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. If it is true and the matter established that this abomination has been done among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it and all that is in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. Then you shall gather all of its booty into the middle of its open square and burn the city and all of its booty with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. And it shall be in a ruin forever. It shall never be rebuilt. Now, they were ready to go make war with them. Isn't it interesting how we do? Here we are, walk in everything we believe that God has given to us, and suddenly, suddenly we hear a rumor about those who are willing to serve but not willing to surrender. And they've done something. They've built an altar. And what happens? We want to go and fight them. We're ready to fight. Ready to fight. We want to go and make war with them. But Christ in us restrains us from jumping to conclusions. Christ in us will lead us to appreciate their eagerness to, to serve, but also to caution them and to encourage them in their willingness to surrender. But he'll restrain us from jumping to conclusions when it appears that the odd brother has done something we don't understand. They've done something wrong. Years ago, I was pastoring a church in Mississippi, and I was doing a meeting away from the church. What a novel idea. I've never done that before. And I was in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. I get a phone call from one of the younger deacons. We didn't have an elder system. We had deacons. <laughs> and a younger deacon had called me and said, Wayne, you need to know this. You need to know this. The deacons are meeting with you out of town. Oh, don't you dare do that kind of thing. Man, I got so upset. I was in a bachelor friend of mine's apartment. I started throwing things. He was catching them. I tried to knock things. He was catching them. He was saying, calm down, Wayne. Calm down, Wayne. Maybe that's what, you don't know why they're meeting? Uh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I know some of these guys, and they're doing something behind my back, and I don't like it, and I'm so far away, I can't get back home. I got back home, found out why they met. <clears throat> they met and made a decision to give me a car. Oops. Isn't it amazing what we do? When people are not walking in that which God has given them, they're going to do some strange things. They're going to build some strange altars. But we don't jump to conclusions as to why they did it. The Spirit of God restrains us from jumping too quickly and making a conclusion. But thirdly, Christ in us gives us, causes us to give our brother the benefit of the doubt. The spiritual are not here to make war. That's not what the spiritual world is about. As far as the nine and a half tribes with one another, we're not here to make war with one another. As far as the nine and a half tribes were concerned, this was an act of war. But in obedience to what God had commanded, instead of sending everyone as a declaration of war, they sent a delegation. To do what? To search it out, to investigate, to find out what the facts were. I liken it to them as sending the, the, the most trusted men into this situation to, to find out what was going on. I liken it to Galatians 6.1. You 
In Galatians 6, 1, brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, and, and remember, sin, that the word for sin is hamartia, the word for trespass means to stumble alongside. It might not even have been intentional. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of, of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. I liken it to that. In verse 13 to 14, they send Phinehas, who is the son of Eleazar, which is the high priest, and ten chiefs, one from each of the nine and a half tribes of Israel. Now that little delegation led by Phinehas, which was the son of the priest, they, they go to confront them and to find out why they did what they did. Now Phinehas, the speaker of the group, thinks that he already knows why they did what they did. How do you know that, Wayne? He confronts them by reminding them of two things that Israel had done that had cost the whole nation. The first was during Moses' day. In verse 16, he says, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this unfaithful act which you have committed against the, the God of Israel, turning away from following the Lord this day by building yourselves an altar to rebel against the Lord this day? Is, is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day? Although plague came upon the congregation of Israel, of the Lord, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, he'll be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. Now, what's he referring to? What's this pure? What's, what's going on there? That's when Israel worshipped the God of Baal at Mount Peor. And it resulted in God being so angry with them that 24,000 of them were slain by a plague that he put on the people. Numbers 25 records this. Phinehas recalls this probably because he had a real role in solving the dilemma. An Israelite brought a Midianite woman to his tent right there in front of Moses and proceeded to commit adultery right there. Phinehas took a spear and killed them both in the act. In Numbers 25, 7, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Now this is pretty far-fetched far that, <laughs> that these two and a half tribes have committed that kind of sin, but that's what Phinehas brings up. The act of their building the altar to him was heresy. And he saw no way around it. He says, if you rebel against the Lord today, he'll be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. He offered some wise counsel to them, I think, when he tells them, come on over here and dwell with us. They built the altar. You built the altar on our land. Come on, if you want to worship, come on over here and worship with us at the tabernacle. Verse 19, if, however, the land of your possession is unclean, must be because you built the altar over here, then cross into the land of the possession of the Lord where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or rebel against us by building an altar for yourselves besides the altar of the Lord your God. Then he gives a second illustration. And everything in his mind is they're guilty. They're guilty until proven innocent. Verse 20 says, Did not Achan the son of Zerah? And this hasn't been, been that long removed from them, if you remember the stories that we've looked through Joshua. Did not Achan the son of Zerah act unfaithfully in the things under the ban? And wrath fall on all the congregation of Israel, and that man did not perish alone in his iniquity? 
the bottom line of these two illustrations was, remember Achan was when they were defeated at Ai because he took some of the spoils of war. And they were defeated miserably. But the bottom line is, listen, why have you done this? Look what you've done and why have you done it? Why did you do it? The case against these people seemed to be airtight. Surprise, surprise. They answer him back. <laughs> and I guarantee it caught him off guard. Verse 21. Then the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and spoke of the heads of the families of Israel. Now look what he says in verse 22. The mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. Twice they say it. He knows and may Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or if an unlawful act against the Lord, do not save us this day. Now they invoke three names of God there. Twice. El, the mighty one. Elohim, God, and Jehovah, the Lord. It's, it's kind of like what we would say today. God's my witness. I promise you, God's my witness. I am telling you the truth. God is my witness. And of course, that is not the absolute assurance that somebody's telling the truth. A lot of people use that to get people off their case. I know, we understand that. But it seems to be totally sincere in our text, as they go on to say in verse 23. If we have built us an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or if a, uh, to offer a burnt offering or, or grain offering on it, or if to offer sacrifices of peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself require it. In other words, just take us out. Then they give the reason that they did it. Now, this is suspect to me, and I'll show you. But truly, we have done this out of concern. They, they, they bring their sons into it, their families, their children, for a reason, saying, in time to come, your sons may say to our sons, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel, since you live over here and you, you don't live over in the land? Well, they, they cite their sons, the problem their sons would have one day. I really struggle with that. Let me tell you why. In choosing to live east of the Jordan, the two and a half tribes separated themselves from their own people and from the land God had given to them. Listen, they had already put their cattle in front of their children. They should have thought of that before they ever did it. And now they're using their children as their reason. Two and a half tribes blame God for their whole problem. In verse 25, For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between us and you. No, 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 no. God did not make the Jordan a border. You made the Jordan a border by your own choice not to live over in the land God had given to you. Therefore we said, let us build an altar. Verse 26, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice. Rather, it shall be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we are to perform the servants of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings so that your sons will, will not say to our sons in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. <laughs> when I read this, I, I, I don't leave with a conclusion that I could actually prove. I just want to say, oh me, oh me. Well, there are those who choose to serve with the body of Christ, but will not walk in surrender to him. But Christ gives us the grace to appreciate their willingness to serve. They're there. They help us. But to encourage them on their willingness to surrender. He gives us the grace to not jump to conclusions when they do some things that, that we don't understand. But not only that, it gives us the grace to give them the benefit of the doubt in order to live together in peace.
Since peace is the motive of spiritual men, Phinehas accepted their answer. He accepted it as to why the altar was built. Verse 30, so when Phinehas, the priest, and the leaders of the congregation, even the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the sons of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and to the sons of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you've not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord willfully. Now you have de delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of, of Eleazar, the priest, and the leaders returned from the sons of Reuben and from the sons of Gad, from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the sons of Israel, and brought back word to them. The word pleased the sons of Israel, and the sons of Israel blessed God, and they did not speak of going up against them in war to destroy the land in which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad were living. And that altar, in my mind, when I was studying, it became, I know it's called the witness, but it became a symbol to me of their willingness to be at peace with one another. Verse 34, the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. I want to go back to Ephesians 4.1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then the balance, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And you know what? Folks who will eagerly serve but not willingly surrender really do not hurt us at all that, that choose to do that. We're on both sides from time to time. But they only cheat themselves. So there's no reason to really fight. You can't change anybody. I can't change anybody. Only God can change their hearts. Just appreciate one another and to live at peace with one another. There's a difference between eagerness to serve, willingness to surrender. But we've got to coexist. And there was peace amongst the tribes. I was doing a missions thing, speaking to missionaries on a particular place <laughs> near South America. Believe it there. When I got there, they told me to do a revival. And I thought, man, I'm going to encourage, I just want to encourage these missionaries, band there on the field. And God put on my heart every single time that I got up to speak forgiveness living in peace with one another, walking in the unity of the Spirit, those types of things. I'm thinking, what's going on? These are missionaries, man. They're, they're there. Then I found out that the third night, the chaplain of that particular mission group came to me. He said, who was it that told you what's going on here? I said, what? Nobody told me anything about what's going on here. He said, the missionaries in this compound right here will not speak to one another. There is such unforgiveness and bitterness amongst this group you couldn't have known except that God has told you, keep on preaching what you're preaching. And we had a real meeting with God that week. And I found out what I'm trying to say. They're there serving, but they're not willing to surrender. You find it everywhere you look. And how do you deal with it? You deal with it in peace. Because really they're not hurting you. They're only hurting themselves. They choose not to walk in what God has got for them. They choose to live right by the edge, borderline believers. <laughs> They're right up there next to it, but they won't go over here. 
because they have decided what's better for them and they have neglected what God says is best for them. And that's the bottom line. Oh, I wished I'd have known this years ago. I wished I'd have known this years ago because I'm ready to fight. <laughs> I know you're not. Y'all just look so spiritual. It's awesome. I'm ready to fight. I find somebody that has done something like that, and I'm thinking, bring him to me now. And God's broken all that out of me. There's just no sense in fighting, folks. Just walking at peace with one another. Somebody chooses not to walk in what God has for them, so be it. That's their choice. That doesn't keep me from walking in what God has for me. And nobody can take from me, or you, what God's given to you. But you can choose not to walk in it. Just remember, you can serve without surrender. You cannot surrender without serving. And that's the way it works. You put the surrender first. Well, I hope somehow it encourages you, convicts you, challenges you, blesses you. <laughs> but that's Joshua 22. Very rarely ever taught. Would you stand with me with your heads bowed and eyes closed? Father, I just come before you knowing that I'm just as guilty as those two and a half tribes so often in my life. I choose to think that which I think is better, but oh God, thank you for letting me live long enough to realize that when we do what you say, it's always the best. And Father, I thank you for the people that loved me when I was making the wrong choices. I thank you, Father, for the people that just continued to show their appreciation to me and pray for me and encourage me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, that none of us in here can point a finger at anybody because we're back and forth, it seems, from different seasons in our life. My prayer today, Father, is for those people who are choosing to live right up next to what you've already promised them, that they'll come on over. Learn to surrender. and Learn to enjoy now the fruit of your spirit that's birthed within them, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the gentleness, the kindness. Lord, please, I pray that somebody who's here today and is walking right up next to it but just not willing to surrender, serve with the best, I pray, Father, you'll convict that heart that religion and Christianity are two different things, that Christianity is a relationship of surrender to you. And I pray, Father, we'll learn to reconcile with one another. I pray, Father, we'll learn to just live at peace with one another. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Just draw that circle around yourself. Nobody's here, just you and the Lord, as Carrie's going to sing in a moment. And as he sings, if you need to come to find a place at the altar, and just whatever it is God said to you, it's usually just one thing. Or if you need to join the church, and you'd like to join the church, and like to be a part of this next class, we'd be glad to inform you of that. We'll have pastors down front. But then again, you might just want to, Receive Christ into your heart as Lord and Savior. Maybe you're here today and you've never received Him to begin with. You've never even known about the life that God has given to you in Christ. But you have to receive it. You've got to come to that place of receiving it. So whatever is going on in your life right now, you just feel free to, while Carrie sings, step out, do whatever God tells you to do while we listen. For additional resources or to view our TV program, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.